Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text this morning. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 822. It is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. As you're turning there, I want to say it was a joy this morning to have Jim lead the first part of the service and to be able to sit uh, among you uh, and just participate in service. Uh, it feels very different. I know it's, it's like five feet away, but it just feels very, very different perspective to say the, the prayers with you and the confessions with you. Uh, and I love hearing the noises of children in our church. Uh, it's a beautiful noise. Uh, the noise of our confessions of sin and faith are glorious. But children here means that we're training our children to say those same things. We're training that they mean something to us. We're not just mouthing the Lord's Prayer. We're praying that. We want our children and our uh, grandchildren and those sitting around us to know that same thing. And it's, I think it's a beautiful picture. I love hearing the noises, the solemn confessions, and the, the, the lighthearted rustling of paper and conversation. That's a glorious thing. I pray the Lord I will bless not only our services of worship today, but for generations to come. Uh, so with that thought in mind, let's turn to our scripture uh, today. It is Matthew uh, chapter 16. Uh, we're at a crucial text uh, in our movement through uh, the gospel of Matthew. Matthew 16, uh, we're reading verses 13 uh, down to 20. I invite you to follow along with me now uh, in your copy of God's word. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Our Lord, I pray this morning that you would show us by your word and spirit uh, who you truly are. And that all of the, the preconceived notions that we have come here with this morning, you would confront those that are wrong, you would encourage those that are right, but Most of all, you would simply show us Jesus. Not the Jesus of our minds, not the Jesus of our imagination, not the Jesus of our culture, but the Jesus of your word. We would behold him as he is, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the King. And no Lord, seeing clearly who Jesus is this morning, we would clearly believe and bow before him as your son and our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. I recently had the experience taking uh, one of my uh, daughters to get her eyes checked. 
Just looking out here, many of you are wearing glasses. I can tell you all, or many of you have had that experience of going to see uh, how your glasses are doing. How's your eyesight doing? Is it deteriorating? Do you need new glasses, new lenses? And sitting in that room, and they, they do the test where they show these different lenses, and they sort of click through them to see, does this one work? Is that too blurry? They go to another one, does this one work? And they sort of work their way through these different versions of the lens so that the object, the letters, whatever it is, are growing clearer and clearer to the one uh, who's watching. Now, I was the dad. I got to sit in the room. I could see the letters clearly. I knew exactly what they were, but just watching slowly as my daughter, oh, no, that, that, no, that's clear, as it sort of dawned on her what she was looking at as her eyesight grew through the lenses better and better. What we have in the entire Gospel of Matthew up to this point are sort of blurry lenses through which we look at Jesus that are growing clearer and clearer. Here we have the clearest word so far in all of Matthew's gospel as to who Jesus is. He is the Christ. If you did a word study on that word Christ in Matthew's gospel, you would see it shows up a lot in the first chapter when Matthew's sort of telling us uh, what's going, he's telling us who Jesus is. But then starting around chapter 3 or chapter 4, the word's not really used. It's used one more time in chapter 11 up to this point. Because what we're watching is disciples who don't know what he is, who he is. We're watching people with very blurry vision, and every step of the way, every miracle, it's like another lens, it gets a little clearer. And every healing, it gets a little clearer. And every additional teaching, their sight grows a little clearer. Until finally here, 12, 13 chapters later, finally somebody sees Jesus, for whom Matthew has known that he is the entire time. He is the Christ. We have been patient, haven't we, with our bumbling disciples as we've followed along with Matthew, trying to understand that if we were there, we'd probably have the same struggles as they do. But today we have a a clarion call, a, a clear announcement of who Jesus is on the lips of one of those bumbling disciples, Peter, that he is the Christ. I want to show you this morning that the clearer we see Jesus for who he is, the clearer we will understand what he's doing. The clearer we see Jesus for who he is, not who we want him to be, not who we wish he was, but the clearer we see him for who he claims to be, the clearer we we will understand what he's doing in the world. It's actually that twofold division that I want to look at this text through this morning. Two steps of clarity. First, clarity on who Jesus is. Second, clarity on what Jesus does. We're going to phrase it more like this, verses 13 to 17, we're going to see the confession of the Messiah. The confession, Peter's confession of faith, saying aloud, confessing uh, who Jesus is. And then we'll turn to see with better clarity what he does. So first, the confession of the Messiah, uh, verses 13 uh, to 17. Uh, You will note, uh, as we're sort of following Jesus around in these chapters, he's all over the place, traveling. He keeps going to all of these different places. Verse 13 tells us he came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. So this is far north. You could look at the map in the back of your Bibles. But this is way far north, further north from Jerusalem, north from Galilee, uh, way up there, sort of on the border of the rest of the world. Right? It's sort of the furthest out uh, you could go. Jesus has been expanding his ministry uh, away from the, the, the Jewish region of Galilee, 
He's been going to the other side of the sea. He's been going up to the coast. Now he's the furthest north he's been. And from this point, we're going to see next week, he faces Jerusalem and his suffering and his cross, and he doesn't break away. This is a turning point in Matthew's gospel. Where he goes, though, is a foreign place. Uh, it used to be, the, the name was just changed, Caesarea Philippi. It was before this time named after the, the Greek goddess Pan, right? So there's, there's sort of that re- residual worship going on there. The name is changed for Caesar, of course. Uh, it's, it's Philippi to differentiate between the other Caesarea. Uh, that's because he's, there's a temple there uh, to Caesar. So the government figure has his own spot of worship. There's continue to be Baal and pagan worship in the area. So Jesus goes to this incredibly sort of religious, religiously diverse place and asks a clarifying question about who he is. Now, you know, the question comes in two parts. First, it's who do they say that I am? And then it's who do you say that I am? Look at each of the different questions. At the end of verse 13, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is Jesus' common way of referring to himself. So when he says the Son of Man, he's used it many times so far to talk about himself. So he's asking them, who do the people say that I am? So the disciples are summarizing what they've heard people say about who Jesus is. And we get all sorts of examples. Some say John the Baptist. We saw this in chapter 11. Uh, Some say Elijah, an Old Testament prophet. Others say Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet, or uh, just one of the prophets. Now, John the Baptist was also a prophet. So all all of these answers are that Jesus is some sort of a prophet, right? He's some religious voice that has come to bring the message or the will of God to the people. Everybody sort of agrees about that, this growing consensus that this religious guy saying these religious things is a religious prophet. The problem with that answer is that that's not who Jesus has been showing himself to be chapter by chapter by chapter, miracle by miracle, healing by healing. He's claiming something so much bigger, so much grander than that merely of a prophet. He is a prophet, but he is so much more than that. So for them, for the people to limit Jesus by simply calling him a prophet falls so short of who he is. So far short that it's almost saying something untrue about Jesus. It's almost saying, well, he's, he's just a prophet like all of these other prophets. And this is sort of what, what happens with Jesus in a pluralistic society, isn't it? There's sort of these religious voices over here. Who's Jesus? He's just one of another group of religious voices, right? We'll put him in uh, with Muhammad. We'll put him in with Buddha. We'll put him in with different religious voices from the past. He's sort of in this bucket over here, kind of a religious speaker, maybe somebody we can glean wisdom from. The problem is this is so far under who Jesus claims to be that if we name him as merely a prophet, we're calling him a liar. Because that's not who he says that he is. Of course, he is a prophet, but his prophetic word says he's also the son of man and the son of David and the son of God. And what Peter's about to get to, the Christ. You cannot put Jesus in the bucket of merely a good teacher. Because to do that is to deny the very teaching <laughs> that he has come to bring. If he's there, he's, a, he's a, as I think C.S. Lewis has said, he's a liar or he's a lunatic because he thinks he's God. But you can't put him in the bucket of a good teacher. 
He's either all or nothing. And so Jesus, sort of quickly dismissing who the crowd said that he is, verse 15 says, but who do you say that I am? Now, what's he doing here? He's, he's asking the disciples, essentially, have you learned anything? Now, you've been following me now for these many months. Do you have a different answer than what all of the other people say? And up to this point, we might wonder if he really, they really do have a different answer. We might wonder if they really do have a sense of who he truly is. Now, there's a key word in this question that doesn't entirely come out, uh, but it's who do you say that I am? That is you, plural. He's asking all the disciples uh, who Jesus is. That'll be important uh, in a moment. Uh, Peter steps up, verse 16, uh, and gives an answer. We're coming to learn more about Peter. Right? He's coming to sort of the forefront. He's sort of the general spokesman uh, for the disciples. He's kind of been, they've just been a group up until a couple chapters ago. But now Peter, and it's going to keep happening, he's going to be the one that steps up. He's going to be the one that answers first. And some of his answers are really good, and some of them are very bad. <laughs> and it sort of represents, I think, the disciples as well. Right? I mean, if he says something good, they're like, yeah, we're with him. But when he blows it, they're like, well, that's not, that's not what I would have said, right? No, I think it's right for us to read in sort of the, not the waffling, sort of the, the, Peter's just all over the place. That we should understand that the rest of the disciples at this point are, are probably sort of all over the place too. Peter gives uh, an answer. Your Bible probably calls this a confession, a confession not of sin, but a confession of faith, a, a statement of theological truth about who not only Jesus says about himself, but who Peter understands and believes him to be. Uh, this answer has taken on great significance in church history, which we'll get to in a moment, but its greatest significance is found in the book of Matthew that we've been building and building and building as to who is this guy doing all this stuff. And every title he is given, he sort of surpasses with the next miracle or the next teaching. Such that Peter's answer is a monumental moment in the history of the church. It's a monumental moment in, in the minds of the disciples. Because there's no going back from this. And now that they finally get it, Jesus is going to stop going away from those who hate him. He's going to stop withdrawing and he's going to set his face to Jerusalem and the cross and the tomb. And he's not going to turn away. This moment is monumental almost, or in a way, like an adopted child who after months and months finally calls mom, mom. It's that life-changing event that you can't go back from. So let's look, at, let's look at Peter's answer. Let's look at what he says about Jesus. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let me say something you all know. Christ is not Jesus' last name. I mean, I remember thinking that for years. Yeah, Jesus' first name, Christ's last name, because that's how we always say it, right? Christ is the title. It's the title that is ascribed properly to Jesus. Like I said earlier, it shows up five times in the first 30 verses of Matthew, and then once in chapter 11, and then here. So you, you're used to just going to church and reading all over the, the scriptures, but if you are just deeply drinking in the order of Matthew, you would recognize this name sort of shocks you. 
This title comes out of nowhere almost. It means that Peter and the disciples are confessing, they are speaking and believing that Jesus is the Messiah. It's the same word. Or it's also another word for him is the anointed one. It's a word that is common in the Old Testament. It's a word that on the lips and the ears of Jewish men and women in this century would have immediately brought to mind visions of King David and the promise to King David that an anointed one would come and sit on his throne, that one would come to follow in his lineage, that a king in the line of David, a Christ, a Messiah, an anointed one, would come to fulfill the promises of God. Because you will remember in your Old Testament history that the lineage of David, his son and his grandson, his great-grandson, it went along for a while, but then soon as, the, as the, exile, the exile happened and Jerusalem was burned down and, and the kingly lineage sort of trickled out. So there is this hope, there is this expectation that one day coming from God on high will be the Christ. And many prophets have come and many wonderful people have come. But no Christ has come yet. And so there, after months and months of living and and walking and observing Jesus, comes on the lips of Peter that this is the messianic hope of the nations. This is waiting hundreds and hundreds of years. This is the king. And when the king comes, he's going to restore everything. You know, a, a prophet can be a prophet really without a following, right? It's almost to a prophet's credit if they don't have anyone following them, right? Kind of looks good. They're probably telling the truth. You can't have a king without a kingdom. You can't just have a king out there wandering around claiming to be a king but have no following, have no people, have no kingdom that is established and is is growing. To confess that Jesus is the Christ means that he will be doing something radical and revolutionary in his time. That he will usher in, he will bring in a kingdom. A kingdom that in their understanding in the moment was political and it was national and it was probably ethnic. He would bring back and he would return the Jewish people to prominence under the throne of the Jewish king, David. Peter doesn't stop there. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Take out the word living for a moment. Peter confessing he is the son of God. Here's another term that we're not really used to. In Matthew's gospel, you know who said it so far? The devil said it, if you are the son of God. The demons said it in chapter 8. And we saw a couple weeks ago that Peter and the disciples said it in the boat after Jesus calmed the storm. Remember this? When Peter starts to sink and Jesus pulls him out and they get in the boat and the waves cease and they marvel. They say, surely this is the Son of God. That's a powerful confession. But you wonder the difference between guys saved in a rocky boat in the middle of the night confessing he's the Son of God to just a regular day, the bright sunlight of day, and there's no impending doom weighing upon them. Will they still confess the same thing? Will they still believe the same truth? And Peter Acknowledges not only is Jesus the Christ, he's the son of God, the son of the living God, which I can imagine him sort of pointing around and pointing to all of the idols and shrines of the dead gods around him. (laughs) I'm sort of looking around. These are all, all of these gods 
in pagan Caesarea Philippi, they're impotent. They're blind, they're deaf, they're mute. They can't move, they can't do anything. Jesus is the son of the living God. Now I would love to know how confident Peter was when he made this confession. Because Peter has a lot of confidence and he's wrong a lot. (laughs) You wonder if he's like that kid in the class that always has their hand up first, right? And you teachers know, and they put their hands up before you're even done asking the question and they're wrong half the time, right? Maybe more than half the time they're wrong. I think Peter's a little bit like that. And so when Jesus looks at Peter at verse 17 and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, you wonder if he's thinking, finally, (laughs) I got one right. And if the other disciples are like, man, look at Peter. Peter got it right for us. He goes on to say, but my father, I'm sorry, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. What does that mean, flesh and blood revealing? That's just a phrase for human wisdom and knowledge. That's to say Peter didn't read a book and come to his own conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. He didn't learn it from his father. He didn't uh, work his way up to it with his own knowledge and logic and deduction and reasoning to discover that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the way he knows that is God revealed it to him. God revealed it to stubborn, hard-hearted Peter, the rest of the disciples. God alone reveals the simplest of truths, that Jesus is the Christ. This is what's been going on, sermon after sermon, chapter after chapter, verse after verse in Matthew. We, along with the disciples, are learning who Jesus is. The, The lenses are clicking through. We learn that he's a teacher, he's a rabbi, he's wise, he gives instruction. We learn that he is the Lord. He's called the Lord multiple times. He is called the son of man by himself. He's called the son of David. He's called the son of God. And here, all of those titles leading us to this climactic title that you are the Christ. And amazingly, After all of that time and all of those miracles and all of that teaching, it is the Father in heaven who opened the eyes of Peter and the eyes of the disciples to see and to believe. There may be no more important question in your life than to answer, who do you say that he is? And every one of you knows the answer, right? I've given you the answer. You could say Christ. But are you saying that with knowledge from flesh and blood? Is that what your parents have told you to say? Is that what your pastor has repeated over and over again? Or is it faith? Is it a confession of faith that has been revealed to you from heaven above? That the eyes of your heart have been opened? That you have repented of sin? That you have seen Christ for who he truly is? That you fall on his feet and worship the king of the universe, the Messiah, the anointed one, and you confess not only with your lips, but with your mouth and with your heart, excuse me, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Any of us can say that he's a prophet. Any of us can say that he's a good teacher. He's merely these things. But only in faith can we confess that he is our mighty king. There is no more important answer that you will give in this life or the next than to answer him when he says, who do you say that I am? 
Peter gets it because God in heaven has opened the eyes of his heart. The disciples get it. If he really is the Christ, though, if he really is the messianic king, then there, there must be a part two coming. And that's what I want to show you secondly in the text that we see clearly the congregation of the Messiah. The confession, verses 13 to 17, but then verses 18 to 20, the congregation of the Messiah. You can't have a king without a kingdom. And you can't have a Messiah without a messianic community, without a messianic congregation, without a messianic people. Look at Jesus' promise in verse 18. I tell you, Peter's just told Jesus who he is. Now Jesus tells Peter who he is. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. For the second time in these verses, we see a word that we're so accustomed to, but that would have shocked the hearers. Christ, we're so used to it. We're not, we don't realize how rare it is. But the word church, and we say it all the time. I don't know how many times you've already heard it this morning. You're at a church, right? This is the first time it appears in the Gospels. And the word's only going to appear one other time in Matthew 18. In Jesus' ministry, it is an incredibly rare word for him to use. The word means in context an assembly, a congregation, a gathering, a community, the people who have been brought together Right? They've been gathered together. They've been called out. And Jesus describes them as my church, my community, my assembly, my congregation. We understand he's not talking about one particular group. He's talking about the universal church. He's talking about all his people, all his followers, all who trust in him throughout the world and throughout time. That's the church he's speaking of uh, in this verse, in this context. It is his Assembly, his community, his congregation that he is building that will show forth his kingdom. And I want you to see what we learn about his church uh, in these verses 18 and 19. We learn about her foundation, and then we learn about her, call it preservation or her protection. First, we learn about the foundation of this church that Jesus has promised to build. Here's the question that has confounded people for centuries. <laughs> Who is Jesus talking about when he says, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. What is the rock? Or maybe we should ask, who is the rock? And throughout church history, different answers to this have been given. Uh, some believe it is simply speaking of Peter. Peter is the rock. Uh, this is the, the argument of the Roman Catholic Church. And from this verse, they begin to build their argument for the Pope. That the Roman Catholic Pope finds his beginning in this very verse. That Peter is the foundation bedrock of the church. He is the first Pope. He is the beginning of a line or lineage of Popes that continues unbroken until today. That's how the, the Roman Catholic Church reads these verses. I believe they are reading much of church history back into a verse that has nothing to do with the Pope. Uh, Peter is never called uh, a Pope here. He's never referenced anything like a Pope in these verses. As the Roman Catholic Church describes 
uh, uh, the lineage of popes, there's a line of successors. That's not talked about here. There's no, you're Peter, and then the next guy will be the next one to fill that office. Uh, The Pope is, in many ways, in the Roman Catholic theology, infallible. Peter is not infallible. Peter messes up in how he speaks. In the next account, next week, we're going to see Jesus call him Satan because he says the wrong thing. To put it mildly, the Pope is often not called Satan in the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope claims to himself exclusive authority. Peter does not believe that he has exclusive authority. As he goes out and ministers in the book of Acts, you'll remember he is held accountable by a council of elders. In fact, Peter goes so far off that Paul has to rebuke him in the book of Galatians. People don't rebuke the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church. (laughs) To make this all about the embryonic stage of the papacy is to misread and to read into the verse things that are never there and it was never intended to say. So what is it then? Well, in the Reformation, uh, our uh, forefathers in the Protestant Reformation said this rock must refer to the confession. The word itself, the confession, you are the Christ. I don't quickly stand in this pulpit and say that people in the Reformation were wrong. Uh, I do that very lightly, but as church history has progressed, many would identify that explanation of the rock as a Protestant overreaction. That the, the, the Roman Catholic argument is so bad that we threw the baby out with the bathwater. Because Jesus really is talking to Peter and about Peter. He has this play on his name, which is sort of missed in the English. It's wonderful that that Peter sounds just like the word for rock. And to the hearer's ears, they would have known it. And they sort of would have, uh, they, they had to have smiled at this pun that Jesus makes, that Peter is the rock. And so if we're honest and next to Jesus, I think we have to stay with the rock is Peter. But he's not Peter as the first pope. He's Peter as the rock, as a representative of the apostles. Because notice, again, we'll go back to the question in verse 15, when Jesus says to them, who do you say that I am? He's saying, who do, as a southerner would say, who do y'all say that I am? Who do you, it's a plural question. Who does this group of disciples and Peter, like I said earlier, he's not removed from them. They're not all throwing out their different answers. Peter represents the apostles here. He represents them as claiming that Jesus is the Christ. But I also want you to note that when Jesus says that Peter is the rock, he's not talking just about Peter. Because if Peter was the foundation of the church, it would sink the next conversation. (laughs) Because Peter gets the plan of the cross entirely wrong. When Jesus speaks of Peter, he's speaking of Peter as he confesses the Christ. Let me put it this way, to oversimplify it. The rock is an imperfect man confessing a perfect Jesus. That's what the rock is. It's Peter as an imperfect man representing imperfect disciples confessing a perfect Christ. If it was just a foundation of Peter and the other apostles, it would have already sunk in the sand. But we see that Jesus builds his church, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. So it is as they are confessing 
who Jesus is, as they are believing upon Christ, it is this confession, it is this faith, it is this truth that underlies all that is to come in the building of the church. It's why we confess in the Nicene Creed that we believe in an apostolic church. Not that we have to go back to the church of the apostles. That's not what that means. It means the church is founded on the confession and teaching of the apostles that is given to them by Jesus. This extraordinary office of apostles for a season is confessing the truth about who Jesus is. So we are apostolic churches as we confess Jesus as the Christ, as we join our voices, as we've already done in this service, confessing our faith that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the son of a living God, he is the son of man, he is the son of David, and he is Christ, the Christ, the Messiah of God. As a church, uh, we are only as strong as our confession. Because without that confession, we're just imperfect people and the foundation will crumble. But we are fragile and yet secure as we are confessing Christ for who he is. That's what Jesus means when he says, on this rock, I will build my church. What's the program though? What's the plan for his church? I want to show you secondly, second truth he teaches us, not only her foundation, but verses 18, the second half of verse 18 to verse 19 is her preservation, the preservation of the church. What are the enemies to the church of Christ? I'll give you two in this verse. First, he preserves the church from death itself. This famous line, verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell, often taken as symbolic for the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, the language that Paul uses, it probably includes that. But if you look at some Old Testament verses about the gates of hell or the gates of Hades or the gates of death, the gates of hell refers to the power of death, the the closing over of life with the gates of death itself that no one can escape from. Jesus is telling us that the church will prevail against death itself. The death and dying and the power of death will not reign victorious over the church. Instead, the church is indestructible. The church is victorious. Go back in time to this moment. How many other institutions that existed 2,000 years ago are still doing well today, right? Not many of these nation states, probably not many of these government organizations, probably not many volunteer community groups, right, in Caesarea Philippi that are still in existence today. But the church is the small, humble institution with the blessing and the power of God is indestructible. We'll be victorious ultimately in the end because of the promise and the protection of Jesus. But it's not only death that threatens the church. Verse 19 tells us there's another enemy. That enemy is one of decay. The church is threatened not only by death, but I think it's threatened from within, from enemies that arise from within to plague and attack the church. Verse 19 gives us the image of keys. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth 
uh, shall be loosed uh, in heaven. Keys are an image or a metaphor for spiritual authority. And it's going to come up again in chapter 18, and there it's clear the keys are given to y'all, not to Peter, to the apostles. The keys represent spiritual authority entrusted by God to the disciples. It doesn't mean that they have the authority to shut people out of heaven or to bring people into heaven that don't believe. It means they have the authority to recognize the lock and the boundaries of heaven and the gospel and the kingdom that God has given them. And they then, under the authority of God, exercise that authority. Think for a moment about giving somebody else your keys, right? If you sell your house at closing, you give the other people your keys, right? And then they can let into that house anyone they want to. You have no authority over that house anymore. They have the keys. They're probably going to change the locks because they don't want you to be able to get in the house, right? They have authority to welcome people in and out of that house. Now imagine giving the keys when you go away for the night with your wife to your, ki- to your kids, right? I give the keys to my kids sort of metaphorically as we go out, right? That means they have the authority to let anybody in the house that they want. Not really, right? <laughs> they do have the authority to open and close that door, but they know who's allowed in that house and who isn't, right? It's not their house. It's my house. It's my wife and I's house, right? We set the rules who comes into that house. So it is with the kingdom of God. It's God's house. He sets the rules. He doesn't sell the house and give us the keys. No, he entrusts the keys to imperfect people (laughs) confessing a perfect Christ. That they, recognizing the authority of God, would bind and loose. They would open and close. And how are the keys exercised? It's not... It's not really a picture of membership. Sometimes we think of it like that. It's more clear to think it's the authority of preaching the gospel. It's the authority of preaching and applying the gospel. To preach the gospel, to offer Christ to every one of you this morning, is to fling wide the door of heaven, to have the keys to offer the invitation that all who repent and believe would come and trust in the Lord and enter into his house. It is to open wide the the storeroom and the bounty of heaven. There is another side to it, and that is to apply the gospel. The Reformed Church has historically understood the keys to not only represent the preaching of the gospel, but also to represent the faithful application of church discipline. That in hard and difficult situations, the the leaders of the church are required to open and at times close the doors of the church. In Peter's day, In Jesus' day, we have the extraordinary office of the apostles to whom the keys are entrusted. In our day, and through the rest of the New Testament, the office of apostle goes away and rises the office of elder. And we understand rightly that it's not a higher bishop that has this authority. We understand from God's word, as we can see later in Scripture, that the keys are entrusted to the elders of the church. What is our big takeaway from these verses Uh, We will sing it at the end of the service. Our big takeaway is that the church shall never perish. Or as we'll sing in the next line, she will ever prevail. Kingdoms come and go. Households rise and fall. Government parties win elections. The church will never perish. 
That means for us, we can have great confidence in the Lord's protection for his people, can't we? He has protected the church for centuries, for millennia. We can have confidence that we build our house not on the sand, but on the rock. And so when the waves come, when the floods come up, the church is secure. It also means we can be content. We can be content in the Lord's plan for his church. Who is responsible for building the church in these verses? It's not the pastor. It's not the elders. It's not the apostles. It's not Peter. It's Jesus. Jesus builds his church. What do the leaders do? They faithfully exercise the keys that God has given to them. Those keys are limited. Those keys are preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, overseeing the discipline of the church. That's God's plan. We don't need to read this verse and think, well, I got to find some worldly ways to grow the church because she's not doing very well right now, right? Jesus needs some help. I got to come up with some newfangled ways. I got to make some different applications to the church of Christ. No, the, the implication, I think, is to press on in faith, confessing Christ, wielding the keys, preaching the gospel, repenting and believing in the Lord. You see, the problem with this text is that when we hear, along with the disciples, that he is the Christ and the church won't perish, we want all that victory now. And so in the next verse, when Jesus says, okay, now you've realized I'm the Christ, you know what comes next? I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be buried. And that's when Peter says, no way. No, 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 no. That's not what the Christ does. (laughs) Because we want victory now. And Jesus is telling us he's a different kind of king. He's a different kind of Messiah than we all wanted. The eternal messianic king must first die. And you know why? You know why he goes to, the de- to death itself? It's so that the gates of hell will close over him. And then he will rise and burst them to pieces. There are no gates of hell that can contain our Lord. And there are no gates of hell that can contain his people. He goes to the grave that he might shatter and burst the gates of hell. That he is the living king, the son of the living God. And he raises dead people to life in him. This is Matthew's clear announcement. This is your king. And if he is our king, there is only one response to the king as we bow and we believe. Dear brothers and sisters, he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. Let us bend every knee, bow before him, believe upon him, and be saved. For indeed, his church will never perish. Let's pray. Our Lord, it seems so fragile and feeble. How can a church that is built on such inconsistent people and wielding such pathetic authority in the eyes of the world like keys. Lord, in our lack of belief, we want to pick up a sword and charge a hill. We want to co-opt worldly power and use it for our own good and for what we deem to be the good of your church. Even Peter pulling the sword to cut off the 
The soldier's ear had to be told to put the sword away. That's not how this kingdom comes. Lord, I pray you would give each of us today the right expectation for who you are as king, but you would give us the right confession. That we could mouth uh, until you return that you are the Christ. But God, open our hearts. Father, reveal to us who you are, that it might change our lives in every way. Give us that faith to acknowledge him with our lips and believe upon him with our hearts. In his name we pray.